I, I, have, I had, I might say, an alienating one. Growing up nominally Roman Catholic, um, I thought you just cling your rosary beads and that's the best you can do. And that wasn't a very effective form of piety. Uh, for those coming in, we haven't officially started. We were just, we were just having some Q&A, sharing some Marian experiences. And it was the discovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ that changed that, of course. And then for a time, it was like, I want nothing to do with her. But then as your faith matures, you get to know, you, you meet the parents, right, to quote the film. <laughs> and it, it, it enhances, and I think people experience sort of a dimension um, to their spirituality um, that is added, that doesn't subtract from your love of Christ, that doesn't subtract from your love of Christ. So thank you for sharing that in all sincerity. I, um, the fact that it happened in Wisconsin, too, is crucial. Uh, it is, because that's, that's our Anglo-Catholic. Yeah, well, it is. You did say Wisconsin, right? Yeah, because that's our Anglo-Catholic um, center. I kind of prefer this. That's our Anglo-Catholic. Uh, um, remember, we've talked before about the, um, the uh, Fond du Lac Circus. Now, the Fond du Lac Circus was when you had Orthodox patriarchs who later went and got uh, martyred in Moscow during Stalinism, who were here in Wisconsin along with Roman Catholic patriarchs, major figures, bishops, and then you had Anglo-Catholics that were all ministering together on the frontier in the 19th century at Fond du Lac at the base of that lake in Wisconsin. The only people missing were the Brotherton Indians who were also there who were mercilessly persecuted for their Christian faith throughout the history of this country. And I think the sanctity, the holiness of Wisconsin um, in that way. And yes, it's a great Marian center for Roman Catholics, but please understand that wild frontier Anglo-Catholicism from where these images come, that is our tradition as well. When Alan Jacobs was formulating the, our first catechist, the way that this congregation understood itself, he used the term high church and evangelical. Evangelical being the grace, high church being the liturgy. You can already feel that that's our DNA. You usually have to pick one or the other, a good sermon or a good liturgy. Thank God we're in a place that has both. It's very rare, even though it shouldn't be rare. And Anglo-Catholicism a, was a bit too high for him. Well, we can dabble. We can dabble. We can understand that great tradition as well. That would just um, intensify our sacraments very much. And I think that's slowly happening in our, in our church, as we have a candle mass service that Father James has led us into. You've noticed what has happened, have you not? He's like, hey, glad you're doing a play. Wonderful. Glad you're having a story time. But can we add the Eucharist to these great feast days? And as we split into two services, guess what, folks? You don't have to be isolated from this whole congregation. You don't have to be. Why? Because this session, Sunday school, catechesis, and because of those services where we will all be together those additional throughout the week. Don't punt to Sunday, yield to the secular forces of this world that says, why not have the feast day celebration on the day itself? The rhythms of the church year, sanctifying time. People need that, and if we don't do it, they'll find it in Wicca. I'm not kidding. They'll find some kind of ecological spirituality connected to nature. It's in the Christian tradition, and the irony of Wicca is they just stole it all from the Anglican tradition and you know, put, put a different label on it. All that to say, let's begin 
We're talking about the Virgin Mary. We're talking about Northern Light. You've got a handout in your hand so that all these things that come at you, you can ruminate upon them over time. This isn't just a quick little session and we're done with Mary. She's always going to be here. We're always going to be contemplating and thinking about her. We're moving from Epiphany. We're in the era Candlemas. Mary is often connected to bees in the Christian liturgy. And some, one of Christie's candles one year was a bee, had a beautiful bee on it. Believe it or not, there are Anglican liturgies that we've used in this church that ruminate upon the queen bee making the honey. And that that is an understanding, a beautiful symbolic understanding of the church. So we're at this great feast where Mary presents Jesus almost in a priestly sacrifice. Here he is. He's not my property. If you're a parent, you probably have experienced that as well. Or if you're not a parent, you've experienced with things that God gives you that you realize aren't yours anyway. They sometimes have to be offered up. She's a new Abraham of sorts, right? Isn't this the sacrificial mode that we participate in? Crib to the cross. Did you notice it in our service here? Let us shine with the light of Christ. Symbolic candles. It's not just in the Christmas Eve service. We did it here. Let us go forth in the light of Christ. We turn from the crib to the cross as we have Lent, not yet in our minds, but slowly there. I love this uh, squinch here in Hosius Lucas in Greece. It is a little corner of the church that has the presentation. And I remember studying this in my grad seminars, and now we sort of have that here. This is sort of our presentation in the temple corner as Mary takes her place. And remember, we ruminated upon the dove as her offering because she's poor. She can't afford the glitzy offering at the temple. And so she brings this, and of course, she doesn't have her son in her hands because he's here. He's here. And so we are now, today, this Sunday, is Septuagesima. And I connect it to the Super Bowl because it is our image of Babylon, right? Our, 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 the pagan context that surrounds us. And so I think it actually works quite well. Seventy days until what? Seventy days until what? Easter, exactly. Life is stewing underground, I assure you. It looks cold outside. We know that because our plumbing backed up. So life, is, the roots came in. It's, it's, a, it's horrible. Um, so there, life is stewing underground. And so well, you have that little glimmer of the hope of Easter in this sanctified, consecrated space. Seventy days to go. And so prepare your hearts for Lent, for that deep plunge. So there it is, 70 days of captivity in Babylon before they returned. And yes, I know there are Christians in the Super Bowl. I got in trouble for saying this in class and someone pointed out. And I'm so glad that there are Christians in, in our football culture. And so here, this, this is our church year, okay? And so what we're, we're shifting, right? There we are. And long time ago, we made this and we said, what if we had prospective? What if one day we had a Candlemas service? Well, now we do. And there are other services that will populate the church year. And so we've shifted from this area, and we're moving toward the Annunciation, which will be that bright moment. That's our next weekday service. Please come to it. And then, um, then we move toward, of course, Holy Week. And so we're pushing along, and the question we asked, let's not just define ourselves over against Roman Catholics in this. Um, well, that's not the way we see it. Hey, we can include them even if they cannot include us. 
We can bless what's going on in Roman Catholic churches, right? Thank God that they are there. I would not want to be without those billion Christians in the world. But we also have a right to exist. We also are one of the lineages of English spirituality in England. And there are Catholics who would say, no, you're not. And we would say, yes, we are. <laughs> Come join us. See, if you discern Christ's presence here, you think it's all a show, really? You think it's play acting, a paper church, as Newman said? <clears throat> I'm not so sure I'd say that about the great Coptic Orthodox Christians in Africa, that they're just broken branches off the true tree of Christ. I think when they died on the shores of Libya, we saw in orange with their heads chopped off by ISIS, we said, oh gosh, the ecumenism of blood unites us. So let's be done with these artificial lines that we make. We're the true church. Orthodox church is the true church. Catholic church is, no, come on. It's a broken body and we're a part of it. We are a part of it here. Okay, so we said, let's look at what we have in the English tradition. And the Archich documents, that is, these long debates that happen over where Catholics and Anglicans stand, they have agreed statements. Praise be to God. Those have been produced. You can read them. And one person said, too much extraordinary and not enough ordinary Marian devotion. And so that's what we've been pursuing. How do we approach Mary in an ordinary homeliness, homely dalliance? That's the way that... Martin Thornton puts it in his wonderful book, English Spirituality, this domestic spirituality of Anglicanism that is unique and beautiful, that migrates into your homes. Your homes are satellites, your dorms and apartments are satellites of this altar. It's what goes on there. And so we thought about this, and we, we went on this quest for ordinary Marian devotion. And because the projector broke, I grabbed her and hung her up here with Monica's assistance. And, um, and I could not, I made a joke when we were setting this up. I'm like, this is the partition wall, right? I was joking that this is sort of like the temple curtain that in the Holy of Holies. And I, yeah, I just made the joke. And then all of a sudden, wasn't it interesting that she bridged the curtain? She, in some senses, became a porous membrane through which God is going to reach out and love you. So the God who we celebrate on this altar loves you with passionate devotion beyond our imagining. And he wants to come and get you, right? How is he going to do it? He can't smite you, overcome you with his glory. He's going to reach out to grab you, and he's got to go through her to show his love for you. And that literally happens as he is woven in her womb. And we have a woven icon of Mary here. It was a cloth icon that we placed here. These are just poetic ruminations going back to the Old Testament on how the incarnation occurred. And that specialty that we don't own as Anglicans, but we specialize in for the entire church, ruminating upon the incarnation. This is an Annunciation icon. It is standard fare to depict her weaving, weaving. Now, what is she weaving? This is what, she, what is she weaving when the Annunciation happens according to the apocryphal documents of Christianity? Guess what she's weaving? She's, work, she's working, she's weaving the temple curtain. 
Is that, I mean, you don't, I mean, you don't need a PhD in poetry and hermeneutics to say that's beautiful. She's weaving the boundary between us and God as God is breaking down that boundary by being stitched together in her womb, the mystery of pregnancy. So all the better that we have this beautiful woven icon. And so let's think about the way that he was stitched into the world to reach us with his love. And she is often understood as the ark because the Shekinah glory of God would, again, overwhelm people. And she is the way that God's presence can come into the world without overwhelming us, right? In fact, we, he permitted us to attack him, to crucify him, to kill him. That's how we handle um, unconditional love in this fallen world of ours. Is that in the Anglican tradition? I'm afraid it is, in spades. To those who would say that we don't have it, that you have to join other communions to get it, because great minds who were friends with John Henry Newman, who did not convert like he did, stayed in it like John Keeble and wrote gorgeous poetry. And yes, indeed, Keeble's heritage has been revived by Malcolm Geit in our time. He is the living heir of the great tradition of putting the liturgical year to poetry. You must get to know Malcolm Geit. He is such a gift to the church right now. Christianity Today has been writing about him. I'm so thrilled to see that. But get those poetry volumes and have him walk you through the church year. Keeble wrote the church year. It's relatively inaccessible, but beautiful poetry. And it's public domain. You can get it. But Keeble unpacks the splendor. And in his poem, Mother Out of Sight, he says, Angel nor saint his face may see apart from what he took of thee. Right? Angel nor saint his face may see apart from what he took of the Virgin Mary. It would be like me saying, I can't ever see you without seeing what you took from your mother and father. But with Jesus, it was just mother, right? The, that is the, on the human side. The father was the, the divine side. And so, ooh, wow, Keeble is pondering this. And of course, Mother Out of Sight, the title of the poem, betrays that there wasn't enough Mary in the Anglican church. And he wanted to bring her back into sight, not because it's idolatry, not because it's a distraction, because it's the ecclesial dimension of the body. And our analogy here has been the northern light. Because our church is facing west and the north is on that side, we've seen this before. And I would ponder with you the mystery that Mary represents you. I'm not saying you are Mary and I'm Mary, but I'm saying it is an indisputable dimension of Christian piety that when Mary is talked about, as she so often is, she's probably depicted more than Jesus in art history. And that's pretty amazing. Why is that? Because we're distracted, we don't love the Lord, because she's a symbol of your spiritual quest. She's a symbol of the church. She is where, if the church is where Jesus Christ is gestating, Paul says in Galatians 4, I groan like a woman in labor because Christ isn't formed in you yet. That's a Marian image. And there it is in our basement. This is one missing Marian image. I, I scrolled through the Marian images in our church. This is another one. And what does it say down there? There's a man here with an inner man. You've heard of that 
of course, from the epistles. And there's a scripture citation here. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. You bear an immortal diamond within you. You bear Christ within you, and that's renewed at the altar every Sunday. That is undeniably Marian. All three branches of the Christian church, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, have ruminated upon this. That's, I think, where we can find that, quote-unquote, ordinary Marian devotion. And when we look at images like this of even men bearing Mary in this way, that's not gender confusion. That is the idea that we are all brides. Jesus is married to us. He's single in the mortal realm, but he's married to us, right? And I think that this assures that we hold on to the Protestant understanding of grace, and let me explain what I mean by that. You might think, well, we're leaving the, the great Protestant Lutheran tradition behind because we're talking about all this Mary stuff. Not so at all. Luther had the devotion to Mary to his dying day. What we are saying is that only Jesus can do it within us. Your merit, my merit, my efforts, my good intentions is not enough. Only Jesus can do it within me. Only Jesus can bear whatever Christ has placed in front of you. That's the gospel. That's what the Protestants are reminding us of. So I think this understanding of Jesus performing the good works within is so beautifully Protestant. And sometimes people think that we Protestants innovated. And um, Alex Massad, a professor at Wheaton, shared with me a Meister Eckhart sermon. You ready for this? Jesus cleanses the temple. You know the story. Here's Meister Eckhart's sermon on it. You're the temple, and the things he's cleansing are not your bad deeds. That's expected that you don't do bad deeds. They're your good ones. They're your good ones. The little resume between you and God that he wants out of the way so it's just you and he. Isn't that beautiful? That's also Lutheran, right? It's Pauline. Wow. So that's what we mean by thinking of ordinary Marian devotion. There's that verse again, okay? Just a, a refresh where we've been and, and fire those hands up. I would love to enter. To, we had a little Q&A at the beginning, but if, we, if, if um, the, the sheet is there to unpack some of this material. But again, we are uh, east is that way in our particular church. Okay, so that's why Mary is on the north. And, um, and I mentioned I had a surprise, and I hope I can get to it <laughs> thinking about this. Um, and just to unpack this, Mary often is northern. Um, in the great tradition. So at Chartres, for example, she takes the north, the less light, so that she gives more light to her son. So like a John the Baptist-like vocation, I must decrease and he must increase. And that if we're going to understand ourselves as Marian, we should gravitate toward away from the limelight as well, right? That's what I mean by pondering this. And you can see it on this sunny day that the, um, the, the light is beaming more on, on that side, on those trees. And isn't it just wonderful? I mean, look at those portals. Maybe we could, you know, in our capital campaign, we could. I know we, we, have a, we, have a little, we have a little decoration that we're putting out there. There's our justification for that decoration. We're finally going to consecrate that space in a beautiful way. Um, these are, I mean, of course, it, it steals the show. 
Um, and here's the northern rose window with Mary, of course, and her son at the center. So the northern tradition um, at Chartres would be a great example. I, I, I tell the story in class of when I, my first visit, to, uh, my only visit to Chartres, I saw someone had um, drawn a pentagram and wrote uh, Satan on Chartres Cathedral. Um, and I just laughed. <laughs> it's like C.S. Lewis saying, it's like the, the prisoner who, who, in the cell, who writes the word, uh, covers up the window and writes the word darkness and says, there is no sun. And the prison guard's like, uh, yeah, there is. You're very confused. Uh, you, you can't, you can't, a little graffiti is not going to destroy the beauty of this place, right? They cleaned it up. Um, and so there she is, the northern light of Chartres. And it happened in the Anglican tradition, of course, as well, in the great tradition of English spirituality. This is the Lady Chapel, and it's on the north side. It's on your handout um, of Ely Cathedral. And so the Lady Chapel would be where um, Mary really takes off with her own special room, right? We don't have that, but we, we're, no, no, we, 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 maybe we'll build one. But um, you get the idea. So the, look at that. Isn't that wonderful? The Lady Chapel here, all on the north side, the north side. This is uh, better than Chartres in a way. And you look at the beautiful interior English Gothic decoration, and then you see what the Puritans did. They lopped off her head, which led to a man hundreds of years later shaking me and saying, where has this been in my Christian formation? Well, we lopped her head off. It was taken away. And the Puritans were mad that it even endured in our branch, the Anglican tradition in England. But they couldn't get to this particular boss. It was too hard to destroy. And so recently they've painted it to remind us that she indeed does have a place in the church and now, if you go to Ely, I've never been there. Um, has anyone been? Oh, there it is. She is back. She is back, right? And what does it say? The word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And she is rejoicing, rejoicing. So that's the story of Anglicanism, the recovery of the Marian tradition. You want to go on an Anglican pilgrimage. You could go to Walsingham. It's expensive. I've never been there. Walsingham's the great Marian pilgrimage site. You know where's, what's a little bit closer? Sheboygan. <laughs> and you can go to a full-scale Walsingham chapel that is stunningly beautiful in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. I've been there. And it is in the Anglican tradition. You want to see a beautiful Walsingham window? Walsingham, again, the great pilgrimage site in, in the English tradition. You could go to Neshota House. There's a beautiful Walsingham window. Right? So we've got that. We are, we, our responsibility is to make up for those mistakes. This window in York Cathedral is of a Marian window that Henry VIII came in and put his face there instead. Right? You might say, oh, look what Protestants said. Henry VIII, Protestantism came later. I mean, don't blame us for Henry VIII. It's a complicated story. But he does that, which is awful. And Dean Milner White, no relation, comes along, and my friend Timothy Larson told me about this, and he took the Henry window and restored it to the Virgin Mary and Jesus. That is our job, to restore her legitimate place 
in the tradition. That happened, thank goodness. So we push through, and that's, I think, well, what we're playing with here. That the bell's terrified me. <laughs> We've still got time. And um, so uh, a nod to Jim here. I find the image moving. Now watch this. You see? I find the image moving. It's always doing that because the vent is right below it. <laughs> and because we have a scientific explanation now, doesn't remove the mystery and the beauty of that. That's the, the, um, the bait of scientism. Oh, now I know, so it can't be also poetically beautiful. Well, it's both. And so maybe she's an image of the Holy Spirit blowing through this church in a fresh and new way. Okay? So maybe that's what we mean perhaps by um, ordinary Marian devotion. Is it biblical? The last time we asked that question, right, if we think of Mary as a symbol of the people of God, not only that, she's the undeniable historic person through whom Christ came into the world in a literal way. So in addition, an amplification from that, not a replacement from that historical truth. When we say the Nicene Creed, you're not talking about yourself. The virgin birth, it's a historical event, right? If you are suffering and you are, feel that you're participating in the sufferings of Christ, that's not a mistake of thinking that his suffering doesn't matter. You're participating in it. That's the poetic ecclesial dimension that we're discussing. And we asked ourselves, is it biblical? And we said, how much time do you have? And we just went through all of these different understandings of Israel and the church that is understood in this feminine way. And so to remove her, to eject her, is um, arguably there's a misogynistic force behind some of those ejections. There's an undeniable way in which Israel is the bride, the church is the bride. Let's go of all that I could choose from. I didn't put this on the sheet. The ones on the sheet are some of the best ones, um, but I wanted to highlight other ones. When you, Augustine, our mulatto African theologian that is at the heart of our tradition. He is of mixed race descent, participating in the elite society. There's a lot of good research on this, fascinating material on him. When you look with wonder on what happened to Mary, you must imitate her in the depths of your own souls. Whoever believes, and now it gets evangelical, whoever believes with all his heart and is justified by faith, Romans 5.1, he has conceived Christ in the womb. And whenever with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, Romans 10.10, that man has given, or woman has given birth to Christ. They just naturally thought this way in the early church. Hugo Rahner, Our Lady in the Church, a wonderful book that unpacks this symbolic dimension that was lost in all the churches, not just in the Protestant churches. He says the Catholics lost this too. And we can recover it. One of a really wonderful book, Addison Hodge's Heart, the older, I was talking with James about this, and I think maybe wiser brother of David Bentley Hart, the more famous theologian, really wonderful human being. And both have a lot to offer us, but I really love Addison's work. I discovered it later in life. 
He has a whole book about how when the woman shows up in John, woman, right? Why come to me? My time has not. Is Jesus misogynistic? Like, what is going on here? Why is woman, believe me, the hour is coming? Why is Jesus saying woman? We don't do that all the time. And Addison is saying, wake up. It's not just a woman. It's you. It's the church. Wow. Powerful. A whole book that unpacks when the woman is in travail. Woman, behold your son. The whole Gospel of John is permeated with this ecclesial dimension of the virgin. Woman, why are you weeping? Addressing you. Addressing you. Thank you, choir, for your work. All right. So, all that to say, we could go on and on about the scriptural justification for this, but it's in our liturgy. I, was, I scrawled down what Rob said because it doesn't show up in your program, but listen for it. Listen for it. When I wrote this down during the liturgy, that he may dwell in us and we in him. That he may dwell in us and we in him. That is said by the priest which is a Marian image. Of course, it also comes straight from the Gospels. So this understanding is not um, evaporated in Anglicanism. There is a wonderful thin red line um, that keeps it going. Jeremy Taylor, oh, Jeremy Taylor, a great uh, Caroline Divine in the 1600s, that glorious century that we need to go back to for renewal. I really believe that. O holy, and again, Martin Thornton's English spirituality, great guide. O holy and ever-blessed spirit, the, the hovering, the wind, who didst overshadow the holy virgin mother of our Lord, be pleased to overshadow my soul and enlighten my spirit that I may conceive the holy Jesus in my heart. Right? Augustinian. He just keeps it going. And we looked at um, in the midst of the evangelical revival, William Law, that great figure, I won't mention this again, but I, I was stunned, having found this deep in the Philokalia, the great Greek Orthodox mystic compendium, that he says exactly the same thing, that the meek, humble, patient, resigned Lamb of God must be born in your soul. And he meant that from deep times of prayer and silence. From deep times of prayer and silence. Make the time for it, I say to myself. Make the time for it. And what happens 18 minutes into the silence, the 18th time you've done it, because the first 17 times you were distracted the whole time. But the 18th time, at the 18th minute, all of a sudden, there, there he is. It's not you. It's not your unconscious. It's, it's more. And you notice he's there. Who? The meek, humble, patient, resigned Lamb of God in the soul. Our tradition from Inga to Evelyn Underhill, we are the tradition that for the whole church revived the great mystical thinkers and writers of Christianity at a time when they had been neglected and totally forgotten in a rationalist age. And so these great figures, if you want to apprentice yourself to a person, um, I think Evelyn Underhill would be that one. I'm, I'm choosing to do that in the next 10 years or so. We went on a um, puffin trip. Anyone gone and seen the puffins? So believe it or not, um, because puffins were um, 
headgear for women in the early 20th century, late 19th century. And so they just, there were no puffins left. So my parents live in Maine. And they said, we're going on a puffin trip. So the whole time, they explained that there were no puffins. Not two, but none in this part of Maine. And they made decoys that didn't work. They finally slowly found ways to lure puffins back to this tiny little island. And these people who gave their lives the repopulation of the island, and just as they finish their spiel, you get there and you, you see a puff, you see a puff, and they're everywhere. They just, Easter Egg Island, I think it's called. What's it called? Egg Island. There we go. Egg Island. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Denise. And so it's like, why am I telling you about puffins? Because it was on that same trip that we looted some New England bookstore um, and got all their Evelyn Underhill books. And I said, that's what, that's what she did. She said, we've lost the mystical tradition of the church, and people are fleeing to the theosophists to find some kind of experiential spirituality. And so the puffins were gone, and they've come back those great exotic beings in the church who have this deep experiential relationship with God, which is not set apart from the liturgy, that is connected to the great liturgy. Okay. It also, of course, continues in T.S. Eliot. Maybe the greatest Marian poetry that I can refer you to is Ash Wednesday or Dry Salvages. And if you go to Gloucester, Massachusetts, you see the place where all those inspirations came from. Blessed Sister... Holy Mother, both, she doesn't have to pick. Spirit of the fountain, spirit of the garden, nature mysticism, not afraid of it. Suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood. He's, he knows his own delusions and ours. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still for 20 minutes over and over again. That's all Mary, and he gets it from the beautiful Marian images in New England where he was from. And believe it or not, I mentioned this to some of you, Maggie Ross. Some of you might say, I want to discover contemplation. You often discover Martin Laird, the great Catholic uh, priest of Villanova who's done so much to recover the Christian tradition of contemplation. But you actually open his books and he says, thanks to her, the Anglican solitary Martha Reeves, her pen name is Maggie Ross, who is under the Archbishop of Canterbury, former Rowan Williams, pursuing a solitary life, summoning us, she's like the mother puffin, summoning us to those depths of silence. And what she, I picked up her books and she says the exact same thing. She says, we don't need some cheap Madonna, that we need an earthy, real Mary if we're going to have a real Jesus, not a slender creature palely simpering in plaster. And then she says, um, in a beautiful way, I have the quote on, the, on the, the sheet, that the answer to Nicodemus, to bear the word, to enter the kingdom, we must indeed be born from the Spirit, not for the second time in the womb of our natural mothers, but continually in the love of the church and the love of the mother of God that brought forth her son and like her in the same movement to bear Christ as well. Ugh. That's what happens when you spend that time in the depths. You think of her in that way. You think of yourself in that way. What's the surprise? I've got to get to it. So here, oh, right by the uh, Isenheim altarpiece, 
there is this beautiful, so it's always overshadowed by that great church, um, great altarpiece in Colmar. There's this amazing Schongauer image of Jesus and Mary with all of these flowers. So beautiful. All of these are public domain. Run away with them. Do with them what you want, right? And just all of the, the um, fecundity of nature. And so I was thinking about that Schongauer and thinking about our flowered Mary, right? She's irradiated with flowers as well. And I thought of that, trying to connect it to our back mural as the, the first fruits, the flowering of the new creation. So let's walk through how it, we got to this point. Again, there's our church back when it wasn't as pretty. And here is the inspiration. This is the Basilica of San Clemente. Juiced up in the 1130s as a part of a scriptural renewal program that we know as the Gregorian Reform in Rome. And this is as much ours as anybody's. Because right near it, here is the chair that Pope Gregory sat in when he sent Augustine of Canterbury to revive the church in England. And there's a little marker of the Anglican communion right there in Rome. Rome belongs to Anglicans as well. We get to share. And so think of this church as your own. We're not stealing from it. It's part of the same body. It's built, of course, on top of a Mithraeum, an all-male club where the bull blood would pour upon you as you juiced yourselves up for some military exploit. That's what the cult of Mithras was. And talk about progress, going from an all-male military cult to a multi-gender church. And it's beautiful. And there is our vine, okay? So that vine is what inspires that oak tree. This beautiful curling vine, and what's beautiful about it is as we were examining it, Denise and I were looking at it this summer, you see these urban scenes on the left and the right. What are they? Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Because every Christian place of worship is a Jerusalem and Bethlehem all over again, and could think of our images of the city in the back, right? Even Chicagoland can be a new Jerusalem, a new Bethlehem. But not only that, what's really amazing is that the vine motif is one of the ways that Christians stole the thunder from Dionysus, the god of wine. On the sarcophagus of Junius Bassus, a son of a pagan senator who became a Christian, he decided to say, I want the vine. I want people to know that I'm intoxicated with Jesus and not with Dionysus, which required human sacrifice, by the way. Jesus ended that. And the same thing with, so the, the overcame the cult of Bacchus in Rome. You know the Chronicles of Narnia? I wouldn't want to be with Bacchus if Aslan wasn't around. You wouldn't. And here is Santa Costanza, daughter of Constantine. She also feels liberated in this Christian tradition at her great mausoleum to reference Dionysus and say, I have the true vine. Of course, referencing John 15. And so now you understand where this comes from, right? The great tendril of the church spreading throughout the world. And if you zoom down here, what do you see? Ah, a fountain, right? It says in Latin, we liken the church of Christ to this vine that the law causes to wither and the cross causes to bloom law gospel tradition in the Lutheran vein. <laughs> Doesn't that look familiar too? The deer, right? 
Those are the fountains of baptism welling up in our mosaic, or not a mosaic, our painting back there reflecting this mosaic. And God bless our now deceased Pope, Benedict XVI, because he has a beautiful sermon upon San Clemente. And if you read that sermon, he says, the tree that comes from living water is fertile. We notice the rich network of branches that fill the entire breadth of the picture. It's not an ornament. It's a great vine whose branches grow forth from the roots and limbs of the tree of the cross. And what's amazing is everyone in their everyday detailed daily lives, studying, cooking, cleaning, they're wrapped in the vine, the vine of the Eucharist, the wine of Christ. He goes on and on. You can Google it. It's so worth seeing reading his ruminations upon that, but I just couldn't help but think that it connects to our mosaic, our, our, again, our painting. Jesus is the fruit. It's a fruitless tree. I think that's because Jesus is the fruit upon it. Only he can accomplish it, not our virtues on their own. <laughs> and I always think about, it's kind of a strange analogy, but, but where's the Eucharist in that oak tree? I think it's the manna that is lying upon the tree. I think that's what, what, we, what we might understand. It looks like frost at the top. Could we think of that as the manna of the Eucharist falling upon it? And again, the image is connected to the cross here, and here's the connection. Notice that this beautiful Jesus, who shows us that love is stronger than death with the beautiful look on his face, and I thought of the dove, and I could sort of maybe connect that to the dove in our beautiful flowering Mary, but, but that's not the surprise. We're looking at this, at the mosaic, and then I look, I'm like, what is, why is there scaffolding? It was right to the north, the north of San Clemente, and there was a little chapel that was being renovated, and inside it was this, a little image of Mary at prayer. And I thought, wow. An unexpected connection. We've got a Mary on this north side. They have a Mary on their north side who's sort of quieter, right? She's not in the limelight. She's recessed from the center stage. And then there she is at the National Gallery in London. We saw the original. I was like, whoa, look at that. She's a great Anglican vision, even though she was painted by a Catholic. She's on the cover of Tim Perry's Mary for Evangelicals. That's, where I, that's how I knew the, the image. And I thought, maybe this is a summons. Here's some more of the, um, um, Sasso Ferrato is the artist. Um, that's what I think she is. She, in this northern place, yes, she's connected to the Eucharist, Yes, she's connected to the vine because she, in some mysterious way, is present at every Eucharistic celebration because she's the flesh through whom Christ came into the world. But she is a summons for all of us to contemplation, a summons to spiritual depth. Lent is on the way, and we'll leave it at that. Thank you, everybody.